Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Um, I'm on tour. Uh, when you hear this, it is only, uh, well, Saturday night I'll be in Wyong doing my Will Eagle show, but I believe that might be sold out already. Uh, Tuesday, on Tuesday uh, the 14th through to the 25th, I will be at the Sydney Comedy Store doing my What You Talking About Will shows, which is my completely improvised stand-up show. Uh, all of it made up on the night. Every show completely different. Um, the weekends are pretty much sold out already, but I recommend coming during the week. It's an early show, uh, 7 o'clock show. We're done by 8.20, and um, so you can get home on a school night. <laughs> but also, uh, come early. I always think the early shows of these are the most exciting because basically, because you know the, the way that I do these shows is I walk out on stage with nothing planned at all, and I just see what comes into my mind and I talk to the audience and we make up a show on the spot. That's how it works. Uh, the earlier ones tend to be the easiest ones to do because my mind is genuinely blank. You know, by the time I've done four or five of them, you build up expectations from the previous night or what worked, what didn't work. And your brain just naturally wants to go to those places. So I work very hard to make sure that I don't, but I always say that the most fun ones are the early ones. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday next week, come along, see the show. Um, I would love to see you there and it'll be a good fun time. Uh, I am touring after that uh, Brunswick Heads with my Will Inform show. Adelaide Fringe Festival, I'm back with my Will Inform show. And uh, then Melbourne International Comedy Festival, two weeks of Will Eagle and then two weeks of What You Talking About Will, this improvised show. I've never done it before in Melbourne. This will be the first time I've ever done it at the Comedy Festival. Ten shows only, every night, completely different made up on the spot. Uh, it will be great fun. Okay, they're my plugs. Uh, touring around Australia for the rest of the year, comedy.com.au. Uh, if you'd like to support this podcast, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash philosophy, uh, and you can chuck it a buck or two, and that helps pay everybody who helps put this podcast out in a weekly fashion. But more importantly than all that stuff, this week is this current uh, bushfire campaign that TOEFOP and Willosophy are running together. Now, Charlie and I just put to look together a little GoFundMe because uh, we wanted to raise some money for the bushfires. I am incredibly pleased since that, um, you know, there are people in all walks of life, you know, arranging their own fundraisers. And of course, if you've donated to them instead of to our one, that is absolutely perfectly great. Good on you. Um, if you're one of the people who's given $35 million to Celeste Barber's uh, fundraising campaign, then fucking great because Celeste Barber's done more uh, to help people than than pretty much anybody else uh, in this country with her fundraising. So uh, absolutely amazing. Well, to help those who are doing the really hard work, which is those on the front line, the families who have lost everything and the firefighters who are trying to save homes and lives. They are the real heroes in this story and... All us people who do nonsense for a living are doing is trying to raise a bit of money and awareness so that those people can get the most support they can doing the important work that they are doing right now. So if you want to, if you like this podcast, basically what I said was if everybody listens to this podcast, chucks in a dollar, we can still double what we've raised. So there'll be a link in these show notes. Follow that link. Uh, chuck in a buck if you enjoy listening to philosophy and, uh, and then we can help out getting some money to those who need it the most. There you go. That's the plug. Uh, all money to the bushfires. And uh, there's a huge comedy fundraiser in Melbourne. Uh, Maybe sold out by the time you hear this. Uh, it is going on sale, I think, at 9am uh, on Wednesday morning. And so if you're not hearing this 
beforehand, it's uh, Hannah Gadsby and myself and Husey, Peter Hallie, a whole, uh, Denise Scott, Judith Lucy, and, you know, the list goes on and on. Many people who've appeared on this podcast will be at that gala at the Palais. I think it's on January 20. So I'll fly back from Sydney uh, when I'm doing my shows and come back and do that that fundraiser. And I believe there might also be one coming up at the Comics Lounge, maybe around the 26th. So um, I'll keep you up to date with any other fundraisers that you can get involved in. I'm doing one at uh, Giant Dwarf uh, in Sydney on the 18th, but I think that one might already be sold out. So um, anyway, you can support. Uh, I will let you know if there are ways on this podcast that you can do that. Okay. Uh, Nellie Thomas is today's guest. This is a cracker. Recorded it a couple of months ago. Uh, I've been sitting on this one for a while. I just wanted to release it at the right time. And the main reason is there, there are episodes of this podcast that, you know, uh, audience members get the most out of. And then there are episodes of this podcast that I kind of feel like I walk away with, you know, a few bits of information that really cha- challenge me and, and change me. And this is one of those episodes. This is one of those episodes where I'm sure that you guys are absolutely going to love it, but I also got an incredible amount out of having a chat with Nelly, listening to what she thought about the world, particularly her ideas around the idea that we're living life wrong have been things that have been very resonant to me in the last couple of months as I try to think about how it is that I want to live my life and what I want 2020 and going forward to be like for me and the sort of work that I want to make and the sort of life that I want to have, uh, this podcast was extremely important in solidifying or even challenging some of those ideas about what it was that I wanted my life to look like. So I hope you're really going to enjoy this. Uh, NellieThomas.com is the place to go if you want to find out about Nellie's books or links to any of the other work that she has done. I think she is a, a very she has a wide range of um Uh, places that she does her work and some of them are not traditionally the places that uh, people will go to find stuff so nellythomas.com that's where the links are and uh, I really genuinely encourage you to learn more about Nellie if you don't know about her already because she is a a fascinating intelligent compassionate person and I couldn't have enjoyed this chat more so uh, I hope you enjoy it too if you like the podcast spread the word around a couple of excellent episodes recently with Briggs and uh, Scott Pape Uh, that came out over the Christmas New Year time. So I know that time can either be a time where people have time to listen to podcasts or you don't have any time to listen to podcasts. So if you're getting back into your working year or whatever and you want some backlog, there's a Briggs and a Scott Pate. But in the meantime, here's Nellie Thomas. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, I was just having a lovely chat with our guests and I thought, you know what, the reason we're here is actually to have a chat that other people can listen to, so we might as well actually just <laughs> start the podcast. Uh, so this is how it starts. Who are you? Yes, uh, my name's Nellie Thomas. Hello, Nellie Hello. Thomas. Hello. Hello, It's Will so Anderson. nice to um, get to sit down and have a chat with Indeed. you because we've known each other. It's been a while. How long have we known each other? Would you Do you know, I was thinking about this. Yes, I do know exactly because I, well, we'll start off with some bragging. I won Raw Comedy in 2003. Yes. And the first ever time I had been on radio was when you interviewed me the morning after because you were working on Triple J. That's right. 
And I remember this because <laughs> I made a little, what I thought was funny, well, yeah. complaint about having to get up early. And you schooled me hard. <laughs> you thought, oh, well, comedians come in here and they're always complaining about having to get up. And I was like, oh, I thought I was being funny. So 2003. I was probably just grumpy because I was up early. Yes, exactly. Changes your entire Indeed. Uh, outlook on life. I've been back doing breakfast radio for the last couple of years. Oh, and the, the thing that I did not understand yeah. was how much you have to manage your mood for the rest of your day. Absolutely. Like, yeah. And um, a, a topic we'll probably get onto is well, the you, idea of fatigue at fatigue. some stage. Then uh, the difference between, you know, feeling tired because you're busy yes. and, and, you know, it being a, a medical issue. But yeah. we'll, we'll, let's not we'll, skip ahead. We'll get to that. And also I would say on that note, because I know you talk a lot um, about the fact that you're not a parent. Mm. I actually reckon I've done very brief stints on breakfast radio and it's the same fatigue. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of, you actually can't explain it until you're doing it where you go, do you know what it's like to survive on, you know, four or five hours decent sleep? It's a, it's a shit show. Yeah. Is what and it is. often I actually look at my co-hosts and go, why won't they stop screaming? <laughs> I just want to sleep. <laughs> uh, okay. So, um, uh, so this is 2003. So it means yes. we've known each other for 15, 16 years, yes. but we haven't had an opportunity of late to, no, not for a while to, you know, sit down and have a chat. And I've yeah. always, uh, enjoyed speaking with Vice you. So I'm so up. glad that you're here today. Now, what, what if, if I was going to ask you, mm. uh, what, how you describe, what you do yeah. at the moment, how would you describe that? Uh, oh, that's a hard one. Um, I mean, I think like any live performer in Australia, like lots of things. So a, a combination of stand-up, um, I do a bit of radio, mainly ABC stuff these days. Um, I do a bit of TV on the breakfast, morning breakfast on ABC. Uh, do a fair bit of corporate stuff. Mostly in health promotion area, which has been a very strange thing, but I think this is one of the things we might get onto. Niche is cash. We all niche is cash. <laughs> um, and I'm also a mum, and I am, a, you know, if you talk in terms of hours of the day at yeah. the moment, in, as opposed to what's happening yeah, what's in your pie head, chart? my pie chart mm. is probably 95% carer. Mm. Yeah, capital C. So not something that you would have seen coming in Absolutely your life when not. you're standing on stage in 2003 winning no. you know, a national comedy competition. No. Well, I didn't see that coming either. So what were yes. you thinking then? Where did you come from that got you on stage in on Raw stage. Comedy? For people who listen overseas, and we have a lot of international listeners, yeah. Raw Comedy has come up uh, probably on the podcast before, but let's explain yeah. what it is. It's a national competition that is run to discover new comedic talent yeah. around the country, and they... For people who aren't necessarily, some people who are already on the scene doing some open mic gigs and stuff, but yeah. often it's it's also for people who have always wanted to try comedy mm. but don't know in their city there's an open mic scene mm. or find the idea of going out at night to, you know, uh, you know, uh, five people in a room watching open mic, an mm. incredibly intimidating thing to do. So mm. they've run this incredibly successful national competition, which has produced a range of comedy stars yep. you know, throughout it. And... Um, they run heats in all the states and now mm. far flung across Australia. And Which is great. Because of the nature of the mm. competition, it means that as a young performer, yep. you often get to perform in front of some of the biggest and most supportive audiences that you get oh. to perform in front of in your career. I mean, what a, what a dream on that level. So to go back, because we'll end up at the point of being at the town hall in front of, you know, 1,500 people or whatever it is. Um, so I was 28, which in stand-up terms is 
105. Yeah, no. you know. <laughs> it like, isn't really, but it feels like it, it is. Yeah. You know, I mean, most of the people who were in Raw at that time were certainly a lot younger than me. And to cut a long story short, I I mean, people kind of go, oh, I didn't really see it coming. Like, I really didn't. I worked in welfare. I worked in policy. I was almost an academic. You know, I finished, uh, well, when I say I finished, I came within 10,000 words of finishing a PhD and then wow. thought, oh, I probably don't need to do that. Near enough's good enough. Oh, my God. <laughs> I made a joke once that instead of being a doctor of philosophy, I'm a nurse of philosophy. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of angry, angry, angry nurses. <laughs> emails yeah. after that. Um, mm. But so I'd had, you know, I'd worked, basically. Uh, yeah, technically, if that analogy had been right, the nurse would have done the extra 10,000 words and the doctor would have taken credit. The credit for yeah. it, exactly, and she would have been paid less. <laughs> yeah. um, so long story short, I was a big sister, so a volunteer big sister in that big sister program. And my little sister wanted to go to this thing at the Fringe Festival and now, firstly, how do yeah. you get involved in something like being a big sister? Because it's one of those things that people know exists, yeah. Yeah. but there's a there's a step between knowing something exists yes. and actually, you know, signing up for it and taking it on board. So how did that come about? Um, so I just decided I had always done some sort of volunteer work or something like that. And I just sort of felt like I really like naughty teenagers. Mm. Like I always have. Right. And I don't know why. I just have a connection with shitheads. Yeah. And <laughs> they like me and I like them. Yeah. You know, when I worked in welfare, I worked with guys, young guys coming out of mm. juvenile justice and getting them in housing. And there's some great stories there if we want to go back there. But I thought I just want to work like one to one with someone and kind of go, you know, if I can be, role models are terrible description, but if I can be like a positive influence mm just from going out to have a cup of tea once a week or whatever it is, then let's do it. So I had the same girl for seven years and we saw each other once a week for seven years and I met her in lockup when she was 14. So it was pretty intense, but she's great now. So there's a good, you know, end story there. Um, But she wanted to go to the Fringe Festival and you'll recognise this as soon as I say it to an event called Jeez Louise. Right. And I went, oh, yeah, okay. Like whatever she showed interest in, I basically okay. went, no worries, let's do that. So I went to Jeez Louise and she didn't show up, of course, as happens with shithead teenagers yeah. and she won't <laughs> mind me saying that about her. And I sort of had a chat to the woman who ran it, Linda Hager, at, um, who, of course, we, well, I hope listeners will know as one well, half of Miss Itchy. And Faye Younger, her you had on partner, has been on the podcast before. Yeah, yeah. Her so comedic partner. Comedic partner, <laughs> yeah, although there's yeah. questions. Yeah. Um, and long story short, she basically said, look, you're here now. Like, you may as well stay. Um, it's a stand-up thing. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she said, well, it's for people who want to do stand-up comedy. We're trying to get more women into stand-up comedy. And I was at a bit of a crossroads. I'd left welfare work. I'd become a bit burnt out. And I don't know why, honestly, but I just went, oh, fuck it. All right. So we had to do like write a five-minute piece and overnight and perform it the next day in front of a panel that included Adam Richard, uh, Linda Gibson, um, I don't think Faye was there, Linda, Hagger, a range of, you know, professionals to give us feedback. 
And I wrote a fantastic piece about Big Brother and pubes. <laughs> I still remember. When you say Big Brother, you don't mean the Big Brother program. No, you mean the television program, no, Big Brother. I mean the television program yeah. and how unrealistic it was that they were all still waxed. If they did, Oh, it was terrible. It was terrible. But um, someone was there who ran um, the comedy room, The Prince Pat, mm-hmm. Joan Brookfield, and she offered me a gig. And I went, oh, okay. Why don't I do that? So this was, what, September 2002. Flash forward, I'm on stage for the Raw Comedy Grand Final. I have done less than 10 gigs and I'm performing to how I, more than 1,000 people. Um, I wouldn't have performed to more than 1,000 people in total no. if you added my first 100 gigs together. Exactly. exactly. But I had no – in a way it was good because I just – I had no idea how big it was. Yeah. You know, like I was just like bemused and deer in the headlights and just kept going. And then when I won, that meant that, what, three months after that, I was doing a show at the Edinburgh Fringe. And I had literally never considered telling a joke on stage in my life. I'd done public speaking. Mm. Like I've never been intimidated by public speaking, which makes me odd. So that part of it didn't intimidate me. But I really did fall into it. And then I just kept going. I, when you say you haven't been intimidated by public speaking, I'm very interested in that because I, I, I think about my life a lot and I always did public speaking competitions mm. and I, you know, actually won a competition run by the Lions Club called Youth of the Year and all hey. these sort of like, but I was always actually very intimidated by public speaking. Right. And so I don't really know why. I, in fact, even to this day, like people are like, you know, oh, you know, I can never do what you do. And I was like, yeah. I don't think that I can do what I do either. Yeah, 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 scares yeah. the shit out I of me too, it. mate. I just yeah. do it. I have no yeah. other skills, so yeah. I just do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's this not is... true. That is totally not true. But I think it's not that I don't get scared. I mean, there's certain gigs, for example, gigs in pubs um, scare me. Mm. I still do them, but they absolutely terrify me because it's more combative and I'm not combative by nature. So that scares me. But the idea of standing up in public, if do you want my ooga booga version? Do you want yeah. me to Dr. Phil it? Yeah, okay. Right? Absolutely. So my theory, I think that people This think, is the podcast for the ooga booga it is. version, by I, the way. This I know. Yeah. I thought I could lay this on you. People think comedians are extroverts, you know, naturally funny, um, wanna talk to people, wanna be, you know, adored. And I'm not denying that there's an element of that. But my theory of most, 99% of the comedians I know is that they want to be heard. So if you come from a family background where you weren't heard for whatever reason or you weren't seen for who you actually are, then that makes a comedian. It's a very interesting theory. I like it. Does Uh, it apply to you? Well, uh, there's one that I think of a lot and it was... It's not a Mark Maron quote, but I heard Mark Maron quote somebody Mm. else say this originally, and I've brought this up before on the podcast, which is um, comedians want to control how people laugh at them. Yes. So they're very aware that at some stage we are all going to get laughed at by others. Yes. And that we like to be able to be in control of how people laugh at us. So a lot of us have been bullied, for example, which I haven't been actually, but yes. No, I don't think that that I ever really got bullied, but I did have a sense of, and I think there's a cross-section, the reason I bring that up, is I think there's a cross-section between what you've said and and that for me, where they kind of meet in the middle. Neither of those is 100% true for me, but if you combine them together, there's a Venn diagram because I 
you know, I'm not like a middle child or like mm, the, it's mm. not a kid who got lost in the mix. I'm the eldest mm. in my family, but my parents are both dairy farmers, mm. which meant that just a lot of the time you're just put in the corner. You know, they're milking Absolutely. cows yeah. and then they they're just bang you yeah. in the corner because yeah. that's what they have to do. Yes. They can't afford a babysitter or there's no, no one else to look after you. Yeah. If if dad's looking after you and he has to go and like check the water, yeah. then he bangs you on the back of the motorbike in some sort of basket <laughs> and he goes and checks the water. <laughs> yeah. And so I think there was an element mm. of like, as you said, like, Feeling like you needed to make some noise yeah. to establish yourself the, in that the world. The child self, if you if you want to get, um, again, Dr. Mm. Phil about it, the child self kind of going, can you notice me, please? Yeah. And I think even deeper than that, because you and I have similar backgrounds. I grew up in a little town in Western Australia. My mum's from a family of 12. My dad has nine brothers, um, a mixture of working class and underclass and here I am, this, you know, smart ass, first one to go to uni, you know, from the age of 14, like I did a campaign at school, that girl should be allowed to wear shorts, you know, like I'm there kind of ruffling feathers. And I think there's part of me desperately at that age and younger that still hasn't gone going, can you just see me and appreciate me how I am? You know, so not just the attention, mum was always working, dad was always working, of course they were, like you got to pay the bills. But on a deeper level, that mm. kind of, can you just, I'm not the girl you thought you'd have. So I think I really respond to that. Yeah. Because for me, yeah, farming family. My yeah. grandfather was a, you know, my dad is. You're telling jokes for my money. My brother is, yes. you know. Yes. And I had a sense, not necessarily of what it was that I wanted to do with my life, but mm. a very strong sense of this is not what this I want to do with me. my life. Yeah. And I need to make it clear to people that this is not what I want to yeah. do. In you know being academically yeah. responsible in like just doing other things mm. that says just please get used to the idea mm. that I'm probably not going to take over the farm. I love it here, but I don't yeah. want to be here. I love you guys. I love but you this guys. This is just not for me. I totally. And I'd be lying to you guys, and I'd be lying to myself if I said that it was. Yeah. And so I think I I say to people a lot that often in life you're either running towards something or running from something, mm. and. Back then, I certainly wasn't running towards comedy. I was running away from the farm. Yes. And then I found comedy along the way. I'm still running. I'm still running. I mean, don't, I think I, I, I was reflecting on this before coming on. Have you seen A Star Is Born? I've seen, not the most recent version. Right. Okay. So the most recent version, there's a beautiful song in it that I absolutely adore. And it basically says, uh, this is, uh, it, uh, the guy says, if I could take the spirits from my past and bring them here, I would. But basically I don't ever want to go there again. And, oh, my God, like I was howling. That that sort of really resonated with me. There's people that I absolutely love and adore from my childhood and from, you know, that kind of rural Western Australia, claustrophobic Wilson Tucky era. Um, but I'm so terrified of that place too. Like there's part of me that is just still running away from it. It's so f funny how ingrained in you that becomes. So mm. I had an example of this not, not that long ago. Uh, Hayfield Football Club, which was the football club that I played. Hayfield's mm. like about 1,200 people. You know, we, yeah. Denison's about 250. Yeah. And then so Hayfield was our nearest town where we went to primary school and played our sport and stuff. And, um, you yeah, know, Dad's had a lifelong connection with mm. the football club and the cricket club and stuff there and still does in a very active way. And they had an anniversary and they'd sort of invited mm. – a bunch of guys who'd gone on to play AFL, but myself and a few others back to just celebrate, you mm, know, this mm. anniversary. And I 
remember sitting in, you know, the, the car with mum, you know, on the fence at the footy, you know, mm, like, mm. and, and mum was just like, gee, you're not, you're not comfortable, are you? Mm. And I was like, I know, I can't believe it. I was like, you know, 44 mm. years old, 45 mm. years old, having gone out and established my own life and my own yeah. world and, you know. Achieved not, not, a few things. Yeah, not coming yeah. back in any way, you know, with my, you yeah. know, you know, tail between my legs or anything yeah. like that. And yet being back there. Yeah. And I yeah. love those people. I don't yeah, have yeah. Yeah, antipathy to those people. Same. I love my family. Yeah. It just yeah. wasn't where I was meant to be. And no. even going back there now, I still feel that, which is yeah. incredible that it has that power over you so far into your life. And it's like, for me, it feels like you're always in between, you know, in this. Because I find it really interesting, especially in sort of ABC land. A few times I've had presenters that I know really well that I've been on with. And they'll make some sort of, you know, joke as you do with comedians when they're on. And the joke will always be something to the effect of me being like an inner city, you know, latte mm. sipping mm. lefty. And I'm like, not only do I not live in the inner city, um, I didn't grow up with any privilege of that kind, of the kind that you're talking about. Um, and no, that's not me. So I sort of feel in my current circumstances, I'm like a little bit on the outside bit in. And then when I go home, I'm a little bit on the outside. I'm always in between, you know. I I, I get that a lot as well. Though mm. I remember when we were doing Glasshouse, mm. um, you know, again, yeah, people would be like typical ABC in yeah. the city, yeah. you know, show. Yeah, and you're like, I'm a farm boy, I'm mate. I'm from Denison, yeah. 250 people. Totally. Corinne's from Corriong, yeah. which is like. 2,000 people mm. or something. Mm. And Hughie's from Warrnambool. That's the big exactly. smoke on this show. Exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> but also not from, um, should I say, Fitzroyalty. Yeah. No. You know, not from Silver Spoon in the Mouth. I mean, when all of our friends and, and colleagues were stunned about the rise of Hanson mm. or stunned about the election of Trump or any number of things like that, yeah. I was like, I totally saw that coming. Like, I, and not because I am a prophet, but because I am not in that bubble. Yeah. Like, I, I totally understand the fear um, and how fear is, is preyed upon um, to create populism. Because, you know, my dad was made redundant in his 50s and then didn't work for three years and then worked pumping petrol at a bloody, you know, petrol station with a 19-year-old boss. Like, that guy's easy to scare, mate. It's also the fact that those at the bottom of the rung are always the one who suffer the consequences of Absolutely. these things. I was literally thinking about this yesterday. I was at the ABC and, um, yeah, there's been budget cuts. Mm. And the thing about budget cuts to the ABC is that they're predominantly ideological, right? Mm. Mm. And so the idea is, yeah, it's always kind of painted in the media as if, like, we'll cut the budget of the ABC and they'll sack, you know, mm. uh, Paul Barry yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But they don't. No, of course they, they don't. Cl- they sack the cleaner. Yeah. They sacked the right. person who was working on minimum wage and That's now they've right. got to clean three rooms in the same time it used to take them to clean one room. And yet we both go on the ABC and go, isn't it terrible about wage theft and people, you know, being treated poorly and done it? Yeah, you're 100% right. And this is one, I mean, I'm veering wildly. No, this is what but, this podcast is for. <laughs> this That's is right. one of the things that really I have a love-hate relationship with what I'll call the green movement for this reason because I hear things like, no jobs on a dead planet. And I think, you know what? Fuck off. Like if I say to you as a touring comedian, will um, the, one of the greatest contributors to greenhouse emissions is flying. So can you stop flying now? 
your answer, I'm guessing, is going to be no. How is that any different to saying to a miner in Kalgoorlie or up north in Queensland, hey, let's shut this shit down and you and your kids won't work? Yeah, or even the uh, the next level hypocrisy of it, which I consider often, which is the idea of I've flown to this place to tell you oh, guys that you should. <laughs> I've flown to this like climate conference. Absolutely. And that's not to say I don't no. want the mind shut down. Well, because both of those things can be true. Yes. But what we do is we always do that thing of going, well, they've just got to deal with it. They've got the to deal with it. The first thing that you should always do when you're shutting down a mine is not present the plan for shutting down the mine. Present nope. me the plan for how you're going to re-employ all those people, how you're oh. going to transition them into. The big one for me was always at the peak of our mining boom when mm. Australia, big companies and international companies and Australian companies were making ridiculous, mm. uh, ridiculous trillions. profits. Trillions yeah. of dollars and yeah. taking a lot of it offshore, not contributing mm. back by digging up natural resources mm. that you know belong to A, the original owners of the mm. land, but mm. but even just in a broader sense to all Australians, to if you Australia. want to look at it like that, yeah, uh, we could have very easily in that time said, and they tried to do this when they, they called it a mining tax, but if mm. they had made the argument, mm. if both sides of politics had got together and said, we recognise that at the moment our country is going great because of this mining mm. boom. But Mm. at some stage, there are consequences to this. Mm. So let's take a small percentage of the super profits we're making right now. Small. And put it into a program where over the next 10 years, so when we need to transition to renewables, Mm. Mm. we will have retrained these engineers to be engineers in the renewable industry. And we'll retrain these guys who are digging Mm. up this to get a job doing this. But put in a serious program where you can transition them from one job to the other, where they don't lose out of that Mm. situation in any way. And I'll tell you, and a you coal miner is going to embrace renewable in- energy course. if you go, here's a better job, of course. an easier job that's better for the planet. And you won't have to inhale coal. Like, of course. And you don't talk to him like an idiot. Yeah. You know, I mean, the classic example in Victoria is the Latrobe Valley, mm. which of course you'll know all about. I cannot understand for the life of me how we knew that those mines were closing. Mm. We knew for decades how did we not go, hey, let's start a world-class recycling plant down there. Let's get blue-collar workers jobs before they're told that them and their family's livelihood is under threat. And then maybe Labor and the Greens would actually have some support where they should have it, which is from poor and working people. And, you know, the other thing is from people in the regional areas, because my parents, I imagine, I don't know, we don't talk about it, but... I imagine have never voted anything but national in their life. They're yep. dairy farmers, so you um, don't talk politics at home. Oh, we talk about issues. Yeah, we don't. But you we, don't go, "Hey, who'd you vote for?" Well, no, and yeah, we yeah. certainly don't have arguments around it or anything like yeah. that. They just have a different perspective on some things that I have a perspective mm. on, which I always find absolutely fascinating, fascinating. because yeah. they have a legitimate perspective. Yeah, totally. You know? And 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 a far, a dairy farmer in country Victoria turns out has different issues that affect their day-to-day life than <laughs> I do living in my <laughs> my life. I mean, but it's not unreasonable for us to appreciate that. Absolutely that not. That two people in an argument can both have legitimate points of view oh. that are both 100% legitimate to the person making the point of view. And then we can work out An in experience. between what, yeah. how can we work on this together. But farmers understand climate change. Farmers work do. outdoors on yeah. the land. They yeah. see it yeah. up close. Yeah. They don't need to read a scientist's they grow the report. Food. 
They know, you know that the seasons yeah. are changing or yep. it takes more water or they're having mm. more droughts and then more floods. Or they, their fish are dying. Right. Or they haven't got water in the, where they used to have it all the time. Or the topsoil won't grow right. in Absolutely. the way that the topsoil top used to grow. Yeah. Like they know this. Can I go back for one second because you hit on something. I went last night, now I do sound like an inner city latte sipping lefty. I went to Christos Chalkas' uh, book launch. That of his is latest very book. Inner, it, isn't it? inner city lefty, <laughs> yes, absolutely. And this is peak Melbourne. Yeah. I do know him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not very well. But I went to his book launch and one of the things that he was talking about and this again really resonated with me, he said basically we've lost the ability to argue. Like he was literally saying his, this latest book is very different to his others. I think it's got quite religious, um, quite spiritual, which, you know, for the left is, uh, difficult to Mm. say the least. And he basically said, please come and argue with me. I don't, I'm not afraid to argue with you. I welcome it. I want to listen to you. I want you to listen to me as a almost, I mean, he wouldn't say this grandly, but almost as a public service, can we please start arguing again in a decent, respectful way instead of being scared of each other or just screaming at each other? I, I often say this to people, but one of my favourite people to uh, hang out with is, is Russell Howcroft. Right. Because yeah, I, I get that. on like a house on fire with Russell. Mm. We have like, you know, a great deal of genuine love for mm. each other. Mm. But we are diametrically opposed yes. on the way we see the world. Mm. It's weird because we have a, a very much a sense of that we both want the world to be great. Mm. Like, you know, he's, yes. he's no way a mean-spirited or evil no. person. We just have... He's just wrong, Will. We just have... But- <laughs> yeah. And I like hearing him explain to me yeah. why he's wrong. Yeah, and, I do too. And yeah. it's... it's No, that's what I like about him because he can... I can say well, what do you think about this? And he'll explain a, an angle on it or a thought process on it. And you go, well, that makes sense. Like that is mm. a worldview that mm. makes sense through mm. the prism of, of your, your worldview. experience. And then if I say to him, but what about this? Mm. He'll answer, but mm. what about this? Yeah. Or, or sometimes you'll go, oh, actually, yeah. yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. And I feel like I hope that he, uh, his beliefs and have got more broad because of the conversations we've had, yeah. but certainly my and beliefs so have yours. also yeah. got broader because of the mm. conversations that I've had with him. And if you take that out of a, a friendship between you and him and you extrapolate it to, to the public sphere, we need more of that. Mm. You know, we need more of that, of people sitting down and kind of going, yeah, 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 okay, I can see mm. where you're coming from on that. But, but what about this? That's Is that shaped yeah. by your experience of mm. this? Because well, my experience of this, this? is... is different and actually genuinely listening. It's an interesting thing too, having been around lots of activists on a a range of issues over my 45 years. One thing I've also noticed, and again, I think this is coming back to being a country girl and I'm sure you see the same. There's plenty of my cousins, uncles, you know, school friends or whatever who say the wrong thing all the time, like who use terms that are, just, you know, just make you cry, yeah. you know, and you don't want to be Nelly that's constantly correcting and then mm-hmm. doesn't get invited to barbecue, mm-hmm. but who are bloody good people and who would literally take in, you know, the stray kid mm. who would give you the last 10 bucks that they had. And conversely, I know plenty of inner city wankers mm. who say everything right mm. And do absolutely nothing. Yeah, I think there's a great gap between those things mm. because if you do things, you understand how messy things are. Absolutely, lot easier to talk than do. Oh, and it's all. I mean, I, I think about this at the moment. There's a lot of protesting going on mm. around the environment, and there's a lot of 
people speaking about what's appropriate ways to protest and what's not appropriate ways mm. to protest. And I was Which having is a th- bizarre concept to start with, frankly. Yeah. But anyway. But also the idea that, you know, for me, I find, you know, the, the worldwide climate strikes with the children mm. and then mm. using them because it's their future to, you know, embrace the world. Mm. Queen for me, Greta. That, was, that was a much more effective way yes. than perhaps what Extinction Rebellion are doing. But yeah. as I was trying to say to somebody the other day is – if you believe what Extinction Rebellion believe, mm. which is that we are currently in the middle mm. of a climate crisis. That we're and, dying. And no one's fucking doing, doing anything, anything about it. Yeah. Like it's all well and nice to yep. march and say commit to targets mm. and blah, blah, blah. If mm. you actually believe, like mm. if you read the science and you yeah. go, well, hang on. Yeah. We've actually got to do something really yeah. fucking extreme. We've yeah. got to stick ourselves to, you know, flagpoles and, yeah. you know, yeah, in fact, handcuff why ourselves. In. in fact, why aren't we all yeah. doing that? Yeah. Now, because if I just to understand their point of view, to mm, not just go mm. these, you know, blah blah blah, to oh, just and go they've all got dreadlocks and they're well, all, yeah. yeah, whatever. They're behaving like that. Yeah, I don't. That's not how I would do it. Yeah, it's not even how I respond to it because I yeah. can see that it sometimes has more negative consequences yeah. than it has positive. Yeah, but can I understand? Their Why mindset of it. saying, yes. I am so panicked about this yes. asteroid coming towards Earth yes. that I need to run out into the street with a sign that says yes. the end is nigh and tell everybody. Yes. Yes, of course I understand that. And can you also, uh, not you, but can one, the people who are complaining about it, because I'm the same, it's not my style, mm. um, but I totally understand what they're doing and in fact I respect it. Can you have enough insight as the person who's shitty mm. that you got stuff in tra- stuck mm. in traffic to understand that you're behaving like a baby. Yeah. You know, it's the same as the, you know, when you hear people, I got stuck at Hong Kong airport. Mate, mm. they are literally fighting for their right yeah. to democracy that you claim to believe in. I mean, I'm sure it was mm. scary and I'm sure you're mm. shitty, but, you know, you've got to break an egg to make an omelette or whatever yeah. that thing is. Like, it's just, yeah. you've got to respect what they're doing. Yeah. It's, ah, oh, don't even. And so then how... Okay, so then let's flip that then. If you if I can get inside the mind of, uh, you know, someone from in- Extinction Rebellion yep. to understand why it is that they're doing what they're doing, uh, do I owe the same courtesy to people who are on the opposite side of that Yeah, you argument? do. Yeah, you do. I think you do. That doesn't mean, I mean, this whole idea... Um, you know, the social media era idea of, oh, well, I just, you know, that's just my opinion. Well, that's great. Like there's two sides to it, but yours is just wrong. So let's argue about it. Like, (laughs) yes, you do owe that. That doesn't mean you have to say, yes, that opinion's equally valid. You have to make a judgment. You know, when I came up through university, uh, the, the prevailing ideology was moral relativism. You know, and there was good reasons behind that. That is about going, you know what, us white people in the West have determined values for the whole world and gone in with guns and tanks and whatever and said, behave like we behave. And we need to look at other cultures and go, hey, maybe you were onto some shit. I get that. But there is a limit, a very clear limit to moral relativism because you end up with Trump. You end up in an area where you go, oh, well, that's your point of view and this is my point of view. Well, no, that doesn't make them equal. You know, I do owe a responsibility to, say, climate deniers, for example, to understand, well, where are you coming from? What is your experience? What are the the factors that have led to you having that? And I will listen to you and I will genuinely try with an open mind and heart to listen to you. That doesn't mean I'll end up agreeing with you. You... 
And if your greater aim, and whether we can do this or not, um, but we, if your greater aim is to change someone's mind mm. or open a door for someone to change their own mind, you mm. know, which is, I think, most of the time the best you could possibly yes. do is just give them permission to open that own door. Yeah, to think about it yeah. later. Crack the yep. door open for yep. them a little, and, yep. you know, so they can decide later that they'll – because I think – there's rare times in history that somebody has been immediately convinced to do a 180 based on one good argument or one good line. Oh, no, you, or defend, one... you defend. Yes. You defend your ground, don't you? Defend your territory. So when you say to somebody that, you know, somebody who's um, spouting something about refugees coming to mm. take their jobs, mm. going to a greater understanding of why they think that, rather mm. than just talking about, mm. you know, saying, well, you're a racist or mm. you're a blah, And I'm blah, better blah. than you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, why do you think that? Do you work in an industry that has suddenly had a whole bunch yeah. of cheap labour mm. come in? Mm. If that is the case, I can understand if you genuinely mm. have lost your mm. job to this cheaper labour, mm. but don't be angry at the person who came and took the job. And where be did angry you learn at it? the system that That's right. allows that and the That's multinational right. corporation you work for that has decided this cheaper labour is more valuable than your labour. Absolutely. Or where are you getting your news from? Do you only listen to Alan Jones? Are you yeah. only reading <laughs> The Australian? Yeah. yeah. Maybe if you just read yeah. a few other things, you might have a, you know, so if you don't understand it, yeah. if you don't understand where it comes Ask. from, you can never... No, you can't. And individually, you can't do that with every person. But if we're extrapolating into the public sphere and political parties and people in the media and so on, we have, however limited or great our reach is, we have a responsibility to do that. If I take an example that that is not as easy for probably, it's certainly for me and I'm guessing for you, from the other side would be the recent um, just horrific example of the private school boys on the tram, you know, chanting really misogynist, revolting stuff about girls that I don't even want to repeat, but no. let, let's just say it was really mm. gross. Um, and as someone who toured a show for 10 years about consent um, for teenagers, it just makes me weep. But all the discussion that I've heard has been about what's wrong with those boys, what's wrong with their families, their parents must be terrible, they must be terrible kids, and... All I want to do, if I had access to them, is sit down with those boys and go, where'd you learn this? What what happened? How'd you get caught up in this? Let's start talking about the fact that they are at a private school. Let's talk about the fact that they're at a private Catholic school. Let's talk about the fact that they live in Australia in 2019 and we still have a culture of misogyny. It is so much easier to dismiss those kids as being like rotten apples that are spoiling the barrel rather than going, the fucking barrel's wrong. You know, like they are not necessarily evil. I don't think they are evil. Like let's talk to those kids as much as it pains me what they did. I want to understand because I don't think the answer is that they're nasty. It's funny. I I recently had a... um, uh yeah, there's, there's this adi- around the world of stand-up comedy, you know, there's a lot of debate around, you know, what happened to the larrikin and political yeah. correctness gone mad and yeah. can't say anything still anymore. Still there, mate. Rodney Rude, Rude still tours. Um, but I actually recently had a joke that I did on Gruen that um, I thought I was making a, you know, a, a type of joke. Did you start shit? And No, 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 no. It was like, you know what? It was genuinely, I, I, and I want to kind of, try to explain this in a way that isn't self-serving. I don't mm. think I don't think it is and people can make up their own mind about yeah. that I suppose. 
But I made a joke that I thought was from one point of view and then the people, uh, a couple of people, really just a, a small amount of people, but but some people mm. who, and I don't want to repeat it because I don't want to repeat the harm, not because mm. I'm trying to protect myself. What's the issue? Uh, well, it, I, I can, like I, you know what, I can, no, I can, you know Let's what, do it. I'll, give you do the, it. I'll give you the gist of it. Yeah. Please take it in this context. That, so um, we were talking about an, an, an AI uh, influencer mm-hmm. on the show. And, um, uh, is AI artificial intelligence? Yes. Okay. But, um, she, uh, uh she said she's a, a robot in the ad. Right. She's not actually a robot. It's stop motion and okay. AI and stuff. And everybody on the panel was saying, and this robot and this robot. And I said, well, technically she's not a robot, but she says she's a robot. So I'm happy to, you know, call people what they identify as. Yeah. And for me, my joke was like, how stupid is it that people, wouldn't call somebody yeah. what they yeah. asked to be called. Yeah. And it happened to be in the week of trans visibility. It was top of say, mind for me. Did you get accused of being transphobic? Well, a couple of people said, you know, for me, this came across as being the opposite. You know, it came across as if you were making a joke about, you know, gender identity is dumb. Now, the point that I want to make is, it didn't cost me anything to hear what they said mm-hmm. and understand from their point of view that sometimes when people talk about identifying as, they do it like, oh, well, I'll identify as a piece of toast. Yeah, yeah, And that yeah. even though my joke wasn't that. Yeah. I'll put on a dress so I can yeah. get in the AFLW. Exactly. Yeah. That maybe even just using yeah. the language itself reminds them of that style of argument. Yeah. Now, that was just not a point. Because from my point of view, I was making, I know what I think about the issue. Mm, mm. Uh, I thought I was making a very sort of, you know, if mm. nothing else, a kind of right on joke, if mm. not, you know, like yeah, totally, the opposite. That, yeah, totally. But then to be, you know, made aware mm. that some people had gone, well, actually that's, to me, that's not how it came across. Mm. I, I didn't, my natural reaction to that, I reckon about 10 years ago would have been like, shut up. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I'll do what I want. Yeah. But also... The joke wasn't that. No. You get your you're wrong. Yes. I made this yeah, joke yeah, yeah. and you're wrong because yeah. I know what I was doing. Yeah. But I don't think that it actually costs you anything to be able to go, Oh yeah, okay. Well let me think about I it. Can, yeah. 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 I'm not I still think that my intentions at the time were right and I think that, yeah. you know, I'm pretty but at the same time I also can understand yeah. your point of view and what you think about that and that those two things can coexist. They can both, yeah. They Mind can you, bo- and, yeah. you know, feel free to email me. Mm. They are wrong, is what I'm going to say. Yeah, well. And they're not wrong in the sense of, I to- like, I, I've i written a um, piece for a, a book recently called Feelings Can Be Wrong. And the reason I've written this is exactly around this kind of mm. stuff. And it's not anything to do with being trans-specific. I mean, I hope it goes without saying I'm a big supporter of the trans community, as as you are mm. as well. Yeah, it's about but I, but I don't even want to say that because I that know, sounds like I self-justification. Know. Some of my best friends and all that. Stuff. <laughs> like I totally, like I totally get that. But yeah. I also think that, and again, maybe it's part of our media cycle. I don't know why it is, but we, me included. But, you know, us as humans in 2019 sometimes just say, well, my emotional reaction's that, so that's valid, rather than going, uh, just let me think about it for a sec. What was his intention? What was the context? Was there meanness? Was there mean-spiritedness in it? 
Was he trying to undermine me? Um, what is his history? You know, quite frankly, and I'll, you know, whatever, I'll say it. I'm not working. If Carl Sandland said that, completely different thing to if Will Anderson said it. It's a different context. You have a different reputation. You have a different public record. It is not as simple as kind of going, well, you're transphobic or you're homophobic. I I agree with the point you're saying. What I will add just for context of this specific incident was that the bit I haven't said yet, which I think is part of the broader point that I was trying to make was that when I was made aware of it online, I responded in a, I hope in a generous and open minded Mm. way to, here was what I was trying to do. Um, you know, I was, yeah, this was my intention got some feedback and going, well, your intention might've been this, but for, for me, this is how it made me feel. Yeah, totally. And you're right. Yeah. But when I said, when I had that back and forward, I will say to the people's credit as well, at the end of it, mm. I felt like on both sides, we had got to a point where we were like, mm. oh, okay, great. And they we were had respectful. this, I was heard, they were respectful. Great. I was respectful. Great. You know, the, yes. the conversation has been had. Yeah. They've been heard in a meaningful way, yeah. not in a. Oh, yeah, yeah, I hear you and then blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but yeah, I yeah. I tried to really think yeah. about, you know, had I carelessly done it? I didn't yes. think that I had. Yes. Um, and I think they... Was it a cheap laugh? No. Was yeah. it a... Yeah. Yeah. But let, let's park that yeah. so that But I, I wanted to mention that so that yes. it didn't seem like there was some people like that... No, no. We were characterising these people as... No. Yeah. As just flying off yeah. the Richter. Yeah. No. But if we park that and talk about it in general sense... One of my issues is because I am even being the you know feminista communista that I am, I'm on the receiving end of that kind of criticism as well, and it's often from other feminista communistas, uh, and that's fine. Like as you say, like a bit of back and forth. I mean, I even engage with you know I wouldn't engage with trolls, but I certainly engage with guys who are on the on the border of that, and I will try and engage respectfully wherever I can. But one thing I will say on that is that we kind of, it's much easier to have a go at someone like me or someone like you because we're safer. We're not going to be insulting back and be an asshole. Like unconsciously, I think sometimes they attack people like you and I because we probably will be respectful when in fact, if you are going to spend time being an activist on the internet or anywhere else, go for the people who are causing the damage Call Alan Jones, you know, ring up and call him. Call, you know, there's any number of places and, and targets just because someone gets something slightly wrong or has a slightly different point of view. We're Palestine and Israel. You and I, we're more similar than we are different. Like there's someone else. Go for Trump, you know, like it's such a waste, just on a pure logistics, not the right word. My brain's tired. You might have to help me, but on a like on an activist, practical, pragmatic level, where are you putting your energy? Are you really going to put your energy into correcting um, someone who's on your team, so firmly on your team and wants to listen when the amount of shit that's happening to trans people in this world really does require attention. That is where the right has it uh, way over the left. Oh, aren't they Because good? the right oh. are willing to get together a group of people yep. who would not normally be in the same room yep. with each other if they all agree on tax cuts. Totally, <laughs> like, totally. Or if they're all just Christian. Or whatever. Or they're all whatever they yeah. are. And they're yeah. just like, look, yeah. we'll put a, we'll put yeah. all our differences oh, aside. Totally. That's fine because we yeah. all believe in this one thing that's Absolutely. united us. Whereas the left is very good at just going, well... Yeah. 
And none of us like Andrew Bolt, but bring him because he brings people in, you know, whereas we're going, oh, well, you know, Nellie Thomas said once, blah, 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 so we can't have her here. You know, like the policing. It's like some kind of puritanical religious Uh, fervour. And again, that's not to say those people shouldn't have told you how they no. felt about that joke. But in a general sense, sit back. No, well, your the, day. yeah. So the thing that I, I guess we're talking about is that idea of it getting back to a place. And this is where this discussion started with mm. us, wasn't it? We're getting back to a place where disagreements and different points of view can be expressed in a way that yes. makes us all understand things yes. better. We're also getting you back know? to your pie chart. Which yeah. I like that, okay. I met, that you mentioned before. Good. Getting back to your pie chart, what are you doing with the limited minutes and hours and days you have on earth? Right. Are you trying to correct um, someone who's on your team because they've got a slight difference to you? Or are you going to go, actually, I'm going to talk to the trans community and see what I can do to make a real difference f- to the high suicide rates in that community, mm. as an example? Mm. Maybe a bit of both. Maybe, Maybe you can do both. a bit of both, Maybe right? Maybe you can. You know? Maybe you can. Mama yeah. hasn't got time, Will. I've got to, I've got to ration my time. Uh, all right. So speaking of your time, yeah. man, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're back to the pie chart. This, uh, this uh, podcast has the loose premise that I ask people if they have a philosophy. So let's ask that yeah, yeah, and then yeah. we can uh, you know, dig in deep. Oh. So uh, do you have a, a philosophy? philosophy. Um, I on- <laughs> Well, speaking, it's probably good that we've got to this question after that discussion because I think it's probably rank hypocrisy when I was <laughs> when I was like thinking it through. The most obvious answer for me would be um, the only ideology that I've ever really identified with is feminism and we can talk about that. Um, I don't have a religion. Um, I would definitely say that I'm uh, left wing but again I would probably like to clarify what that means for me but I think... I've spent my whole life, basically, as one example of my rank hypocrisy, have spent my whole life being involved in charity. You know, we talked about the big sister thing. I mean, poor Will, I've asked you to do probably 20 free gigs, I reckon. You know, I'm always involved in causes and doing community stuff. And and at the same time, I think that that, that kind of stuff, charity, where I used to work, welfare, all sorts of things props up a broken system. You know, it puts a puts a band-aid on a on a shark wound. You know, like this whole idea that we can go and work at a soup kitchen and feed the guy because, you know, and that poor woman who's living in a car cuz her husband beat the shit out of her and feel good that we gave her a bowl of soup. Give her a fucking house. Maybe we actually shouldn't even own houses, you know, if you want to get even more radical about it. How we are living is wrong. And I have spent my whole life being part of uh, the attempts to patch it up. And that that is, uh, you know, it's something that I really get when you say it, which is, you know, the bowl of soup is treating the... Yeah, the symptom you can see. Yeah. But what we really need to get back to, it's like, you know, it's like telling people to separate their recycling. Yes. It's all well and good, but if we don't stop the cycle of consumption that we're locked yeah. in in the first place, it doesn't yeah. matter how much you actually recycle. Yeah. Like yeah. what stop we've got to do is stop buying that yeah. shit. What yeah. we've got to stop doing mm. is letting us be advertised to that the 
t- on the forty-five mm. inch TV that you just bought, mm. an mm. ad for a, you know a fifty-two mm. inch TV that you mm. suddenly are like, oh, I have to buy mm. that one and check out this TV. But That's, I took it to the electronic recycling yeah. centre, so I'm fine. So I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, you know, this cycle of inbuilt obsolescence mm. when it comes to electronics in particular, but mm. you know, fast fashion, fast mm. furniture. Mm. But then, of course, those things then become problematic because you, so, so for example, mm. and it turns out mm. the world's really complex. Yeah. Isn't it, Nelly? <laughs> but walk me through, you know, this, for example, right? Um, fast fashion. So when, mm. when I say fast fashion, I mean, you know, Target, Kmart. Yeah. $3 t Place you can buy a $3 yeah. t-shirt. Yeah. Anytime you're buying a $3 t-shirt, somebody's getting exploited, mm. right? You know, there's a kid in a you know, Bangladeshi mm. t-shirt factory mm. that isn't, safety inspected Mm. and, you know, he's going to fall down or, Mm. you know, catch on fire and it'll be in the news for one day and they'll Mm. sign a bunch of agreements and do nothing about it. And you'll have to self-serve and get heckled at the checkout. Yeah. Like even on your own self-interested level, you know. But, of course, the other argument would be, yes, that's a Mm. very great moral argument to Mm. be making and absolutely true. Nothing wrong with that. get paid. Is this where we're going? No, no. Okay. I was going to say that the people buying the three dollar t shirts yeah. are the people who can only afford three dollar yes. t shirts. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Again, we we treat yep. it at that level mm. where it's like you shouldn't be buying that three dollar t shirt mm. to someone who can only mm. afford a three dollar t shirt. Mm. Mm. And I think the same can be said of, um, say, levies on roads, where you go like, I want people to drive less, so tax the fuck out of roads. I'm thrilled. Put a bloody make me pay every time I go on a road. Guess what? I can afford it. You know, uh, that's a totally different scenario to uh, uh, that uh, one of my cousins or where I would have been if I hadn't had the opportunities that I've had. But we get so distracted by this conversation without stepping back and kind of going, why have we lost sight of the idea that government can be a place for good? Government can be a place where you make rules uh, in some senses to protect us from ourselves. Why do we focus on the $3 T-shirt, instead of going, why do you allow um, the import of $3 T-shirt or, you know, 10 cent T-shirts and then allow Kmart to sell them? Of course someone's going to buy it. Of course they are. You know, and again, coming back to the soup kitchen kind of thing, we get distracted with this conversation. Well, why is he at the soup kitchen? Why doesn't he have a job? Is he a drug addict? Is he all that, like all this sort of individualising instead of stepping back and going, hang on, we live in... Probably, well, certainly one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We claim to have a fair go. The welfare system was set up as a safety net. Why aren't we looking after him? Regardless of what he's done, regardless of whether or not he made choices, give him a house. Like I, my thing is we go, we keep asking the question over and over, not because we don't know, like, know the answer. We don't like it. Guess what the answer is? We need to pay more tax and give that fucker a house. And then he can cook his own soup and he probably won't develop mental health issues to the same degree and he probably won't be in hospital taking your bed, quote unquote. We know the answer. We just don't like it. Yeah, it's the the example of, you know, treating the homeless problem once you're annoyed by how many people are sleeping on the streets oh. of the city. That's not the... Yeah. It, the, treating that problem isn't about moving those people on. No. You've got to treat that problem a, a fair way up the, the, the river the from, wh- with the prison, from where it is. The, you know, war on drugs, the prison stuff. We, we know the answer. Mm. We know we should legalise drugs. Yeah. We bloody know it. This is not theoretical. They're very smart people and examples in the world where it works. We know it. We just don't like the answer. Mm. 
that actually people can make that choice for themselves. And if they do fuck themselves up, that it's part of our responsibility as humans to look after them. Yeah. It's one of the things I always find hilarious about the medicinal cannabis debate, yeah. which is this thing of like when everyone's always like, well, yeah, but we've taken the, you know, we, we've worked on one now where you don't, you don't get any of the, you know, the kind of side effects, the, yeah, yeah. you know, the kind of, you know. <laughs> they won't get high. Yeah. They won't get high. And I was like, yeah. would it be that bad if they yeah, got that's high? that's right. That's right. Like their hips hurt. Yeah. Getting that's a right. little high as well and watching yeah. like a movie is actually a lovely thing to do when your hips hurt. That, that girl's got <laughs> stage four cancer. Yeah. Let, let her let get, her get high, a little mate. high, mate. Totally. She's just done a week of chemo. Yeah, You know that's what? Right. If she wants to get high. That's right. Netflix and, and chill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why is that such I'll a terrible thing? Yeah. 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 But I guess it totally... Her appetite's back and That's she's right. having a laugh. That's right. She actually feels happy. Yeah. Why do you care about that? Because yeah. you're moralising. That's why. Mm. You're moralising. But it's that systems, it's the big system stuff. I'm loath to um, romanticise traditional cultures. Like there's way too much of that mm. going on in the left as well. But I do appreciate that idea of, you know, in particularly in Aboriginal Australia, across all the nations... The idea of owning land, for example, is just ridiculous. Mm. It's like, be like owning God, mm. you know, and there's something in that. I'm not saying we all have to give, I own house. I own, in fact, I own two houses, hashtag privileged, mm. but I'm not saying we have to like throw all that out, but listen to it and kind of go, why is that? Why did that work for 60,000 years? That worked because no one's homeless then. You know, you don't have this massive gap of opportunity between rich and poor if you don't have private ownership. What about the argument of the ineffectiveness of government? Like the the, the incompetence itself, you know, at governmental mm. levels has led to people's distrust of government. Because yeah, totally. what you're saying in a very th- theoretic way, you know, like th- pay more tax, Mm. Yeah, you know, have these programs that are instituted at the right levels, reform the system mm. itself, yeah, it's et cetera, et cetera. But mm. um, that perhaps people have become disillusioned fairly or unfairly by mm. a perception or a reality mm. around incompetence, greed, mm. personal ambition, you know, all these things that, you know, mm. politics as, yep. we, as we see them have become. Uh, I totally agree, um, except that I would say that the, the market's incompetent as well. So to give you an example, you know, and doesn't give a shit. So, yeah. um, <laughs> I mean, fact, is it not? It's the, that is such a good insight, though, because often people will go, well, we'll get the, yeah, we'll leave it to the free market. Yeah. And no, you're right. No, it's fucked too. Yeah, it's fucked. And it doesn't give a so, shit. So, <laughs> like, I'm not saying government's yeah. great, but what, that's yeah. all we've got, mate. Yeah. So, you know, when yeah. I worked in welfare, for example, so this is the um, what late 90s and early 2000s, that's when the privatisation of welfare services started to happen. So basically what happened, say homelessness services, for example, would be run centrally by the government in state governments. And then they had a very clever idea when they went, oh, what we'll do is we'll contract that out, um, often to church providers, um, but sometimes to private providers, and we'll just give them the money and then we don't have this big centralised like waiting list and, you know, foster carers and all of this shit, which serves two things. One, they don't have to deal with it. But the other is when we do see people sleeping rough, the government doesn't go, oh, that's my problem. They go, oh, Melbourne City Mission didn't give them a house. Yeah, no shit, mate, because you didn't give them any money to give them a house. So you get this arm's length kind of thing and they've done no better. 
They've done no better. This deregulation, I would argue, and I think almost anyone who still works in the industry mm. would argue, is far worse, particularly for people with disabilities. Mm. You know, the closing down of those kind of um, facilities for people with disabilities who needed some kind of support. Oh, it's better to have them in the community. Yeah, that, well, that would be great mm. if you had given them community housing. But guess where they are? They're in jail. Uh, you've had some personal experience around because Australia has uh, an NDIS, oh, right? Well, and uh, it is flawless and perfect, and yeah. it's fixed everything. <laughs> yeah. I believe. It's, it's, if I can, if I can sum up uh, <sighs> some of your Facebook posts, I believe yeah. that it's been nothing but a hundred percent success, right? Is yeah, that, no, it's been right? it's been sweet. So, what's been your experience with the NDIS? NDIS. So, uh, well, two. If I can go meta first and go, can we please start talking about how important and beautiful and wonderful the idea of a safety net is? That is what the welfare system is. So if you're not going to get rid of private property and have a revolution, um, what you do is you have a capitalist system, but you have a really fucking strong safety net. And that's Centrelink and that's NDIS and that's public housing and social housing, all of which have been eroded. So I think that theoretically... Um, but that has become my reality in the last few years. So my eldest daughter has chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, and is home full time and can't, you know, I mean, I don't like to go too much into her symptoms cause it yeah. feels like, like a betrayal of her privacy, right. but I will say there's, there's, she's gone from, you know, a nine year old who was sort of school captain and top of the class mm. and 30 friends and extroverted, um, to spending, you know, often 23 hours a day in bed. So she requires a lot of care. She's homeschooled. I'm giving up work um, to take care of her. I've been trying to juggle everything. Can't do it anymore. Our and other, and yeah. so, because I, like, I am also very respectful of the fact that these are children. Yes. And I don't want to, you know, betray, yes. you know, too much about them. But I think yeah. that we, we need to sort of talk about it at the same time yes. to, so... Uh, I just want to talk about chronic fatigue syndrome. Yes. You know, while we're yes, on generally. that. Yeah. Because one of, I think, probably the, I mean, I, let's, there's no point in like ranking things anyway, yes. but very yes. misunderstood in. It's not the oppression of Olympics, it but it yes. is. Yes. Well, yes, we don't have to put them on a podium, do yeah, we? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. let's just say that it is full on, full on and full on. not. A great deal of sympathy no. and a great deal of misunderstanding. And, you know, the thing, it's interesting in my position. So now I'm part of a, like a couple of carers groups and um, I'm the only one in that carers group that has any kind of media access. Yeah. And so there's a bit of pressure, not from them, but there's a, I feel a responsibility mm. to talk about it. But it is to quote, I know, I think you're a West Wing fan, aren't you? Mm, well, I no. was a West Wing. I was a West a Wing fan ago. when the West Wing was on. Yeah, right. I much. <laughs> I've revisited the West Wing. I'm and, rewatching it again. Yeah, it's problematic. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, totally, totally. And I think perhaps the effect that the West Wing had on uh, American liberal politics yes. it has not proved to be no, wasn't uh, as effective as a particularly hoped. effective or productive one. But mm. yes, as a work of fantasy at the time, I certainly was totally. No doubt. Yes. Um, Regardless, there's a great line in there where um, a president from another country who's seeking aid says, it's a terrible thing to have to beg for your life. And that's how I feel talking about my daughter. You know, I feel the pressure to have to talk about how hard it is um, for her and for me. And it's undignified. It feels really 
unfair on two levels. One, to have to do that to myself and to her, but also to when I did have problems with the NDIS, the amount of people who said to me, just call John Fain, you know, or just like call, you know, Jed Carney, who's my local member or whoever, because I do know them mm. through my work. And I'm like, it's not how it's supposed to work. It's not like I shouldn't get special access. There is literally special access phone. I shouldn't get access to that when, you know, Cheryl from Narry Warren can't. It's not fair. So that aside, chronic fatigue syndrome, I'll say in general, it's got a bad rap in the past because basically my theory, again, if you want me to get what I call Dr. Phil about it, I reckon doctors don't like what they can't fix. And that's also human. You know, like I don't understand it and I can't fix it for you. So it's not real. It's often, I think, you know, mental health issues yes. like fell into that category a lot yes. previously. And I think we're having a greater understanding in society, but, but you know, a lot yeah. of the time it was like, you're putting it on, I don't you? understand it because yeah. I can't fix it. Cheer up, mate. Yeah. Can't Come you on. just go for a walk yeah. and it'll be fine. Yeah. And I think the, the irony is that basically because they haven't for many years and it was sort of on the verge of understanding the physical nature of chronic fatigue now and the, what do they call it? The pathogenic, whatever, whatever, some scientific, basically the stuff in the cells. Mm-hmm. Um, because they haven't understood that, uh, lots of the medical uh, profession have gone, oh, it's, it's in the head. You know, this kid just doesn't want to go to school. Uh, now they understand the best way I can explain it in lay terms is that it may be for a lot of people should be called post-viral syndrome. So you get a virus Mm -hmm. and it damages the mitochondria in your cells. And then regardless of the good energy that you put in your body, like you can eat fucking turmeric and you can have your bloody, you know, ginger latte and you can do everything you can do. And we have, um, the mitochondria literally can't convert it to energy. So the consequence of that is when I say tired, like it doesn't cover it. It's, you know, deep, deep fatigue, um, pain in the joints, um, obviously a lot of problems with your sleep. There's some kids, for example, that I know who can't lift their arms up, you know, so like you can't wash your hair because you just can't lift your own arms up. Now that's a severe case, you know, but um, that's that's the level that we're talking the pain, I think, is one of the big things that's not known. A lot of people with chronic fatigue syndrome end up also developing POTS, and I can't remember all the words for it, but it basically means your blood pressure's fucked. Yeah, right. So you stand up and faint, or you're tired um, the minute you sit up. So you have to lay down mm. all the time. What One of the things that's hard about it, and it's similar with MS, it's similar with rheumatoid arthritis, it's similar with a whole range of conditions, which are now better understood. But you can seem all right for a little while, you know. So, of course, my beautiful girl's 12. If a mate comes over, she's going to rally for an hour. You know, she's going to sit up and um, have a chat and maybe even go to their birthday party for an hour and a half or something. What people don't see is that she's two weeks in bed after that, you know. So... You don't see what's happening behind the closed doors. And that's probably true, you know, to, to a certain extent about a lot of sufferers of chronic pain. Absolutely. You it know, is. Because often if the, you know, if you've got your arm in a cast, people yep. can see it. But yep. if 
your, your yeah. elbow, your aches from arthritis, you know, yeah. 18 hours of the day, but you yeah. can still kind of go out and do a few things that people don't. And mental yeah. health can be exactly the same thing, which is exactly. someone can present as being like they're having yeah. a good day, but yeah. it does not mean that later on that day or the next day or whatever. That, and people get sick of hearing yeah. about it. I mean, you know yes. this, you've, you've suffered chronic pain. Like you don't want to be, I don't want to be the, the one at the party kind of going, oh, and this happened yesterday and this happened, because that's our day-to-day reality. Yeah. You get sick of talking about it. People get sick of hearing about it. One of the things in terms of life philosophy that's really challenged me over the last few years since she got sick um, was those narratives of, you know, big picture narratives of friends and family and community have really been challenged. Because the thing I've actually realised is no one's coming. You know, like you, this, maybe I'm naive, but there's part of me that just thought like everyone will swoop in, in a situation like that. You know, people, everyone will be there, you know, whether that's the state through the NDIS and the safety net so-called or Centrelink. I mean, I tried to apply for the carer's allowance. I got so distressed and I'm not even kidding that I burst into tears and just didn't do it. Would you suggest the system is set up uh, yes, to disincentivise people from actually applying to the, these things? If a 45-year-old woman with almost 10 years' education um, and who speaks and writes for a living can't navigate the carer's allowance for 60 bucks a week and gives up in distress, I mean, I can afford not to have the 60 bucks a week, you know? Uh, but if that does me in... Imagine what it does to almost everyone else applying. I cannot, like John Fain always says, uh, you know, it's more likely to be in any systems thing, incompetence rather than deliberate strategy. I've subscribed to that view for a long time myself. I do not believe that with Centrelink and NDIS. I really don't. There's just literally, so to give you an example with NDIS, to even apply, you've got to go online and then you navigate a kind of ridiculous series of questions, then you've got to call them. So you've got to call to then apply after you've done that. You can't just apply online. You've got to call them, and then they've got to send you a form. And then you fill out those forms, and you've got to get supporting evidence, which is fine. Of course, you should have to do that. So I did all that. Then I waited for... This is for my other daughter, mind you. This is not for my older one, so (laughs) it's a whole other discussion. Waited for four or five months... And ended up, you know, people saying to me, you shouldn't wait that long, you know, call the special number. Da, da. And I didn't do that, but I rang the service provider. Oh, no, we can't tell you how long. But then funnily enough, the next day I got a meeting. Then you go into the meeting, you tell them your story again. Then they say, okay, well, we'll get a, I don't know what they're called, a supervisor, a coordinator, whoever um, will do your assessment. When will that happen? Don't know. So that's where we are. Right, so we're not even in the trying to do the plan, what do you think she'd need kind of phase. It is a war of attrition, Will, honestly. And during that meeting, I asked about, so that was my other daughter's autistic. So that was what that meeting was for. I'm asking about, I said, oh, you know, my other daughter has chronic fatigue syndrome and she's home, da, da, da. Do you think, like, could we get any support for her, maybe school, a tutor or something like that? Oh, no, chronic fatigue syndrome is an illness. It's not a disability. So you could try and make an argument for it, but it doesn't fall under the NDIS. Like, hang on. So there's people with chronic fatigue syndrome who can't walk or who can't have a shower. So, and you review it every 12 months anyway. So if they do suddenly get better, like you can take the psychologist away 
you know, or the or the OT or whatever. It doesn't make any sense. I, I maybe I'm wrong, but it feels deliberate. It feels like it's designed to make you throw your hands up in the air and go just scrape by. Uh, so going from, I mean, when you become a parent, of course you understand that it is, you know, the most massive responsibility mm. that you're going to have in your life. Oh, but, no, you don't. <laughs> but Well, that's what I was going to say. It becomes think, clear. Well, you yes. think that you understand yeah, that. You Perhaps think is, you do, yeah. Yeah, you, you, yeah. But, you know, what I have seen and observed in others is that then at some stage a challenge yeah. will come along. Mm. That is so massive that you're like, oh, I didn't realize when mm. I signed up for this, that this was going to be mm. part of the challenge. Mm. Um, how, how, how have you taken on board that challenge to talk to me a little bit about how it's changed your life? Mm. Oh, in many, many ways. Um, I think you don't, you don't expect to be a carer. Like you expect to be a carer in the capital C sense mm. when you've got babies. Yeah. You know, you don't expect to be a carer um, when your kids are the age that my kids are. I guess unless they're born with a disability mm. and then you've got to get used to that quick smart. I've got lots of friends with kids with disabilities. I thought I understood um, what that role meant. Uh, I mean, I can't, I can't tell you the last three years have challenged me in my own health, you know, mental and physical, like dramatically but also just existentially, like that idea, oh my God, no one's coming, is like that, it's still doing my head in. I'm kind of more at peace with it now, but the, the, the people, the systems, the, 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 the things that I thought would come in in a crisis situation like that, um, mostly haven't. And that's... That's, I mean, I don't want that to sound like I'm being even critical of them. It's just what I've noticed, you know, it's just what I've noticed. I'm just like, oh, I really thought you don't expect you'd never have a crisis. You know, I would have thought it would be me that would have a health issue <laughs> before one of my kids would. You don't expect, you know, that life is unpredictable, but I thought that it would play out differently if it did happen. So then when something like this comes along, mm. I mean, it's not like you... I mean, I know, you know the sort of person you are. You, it's not like you're going to, you know, throw your hands up in the air and walk out the door and no. you know, not do anything about it. No. But you suddenly you know, must have a realisation that's like, oh, my life is completely different to what I thought it was going to be. And, yes. And I know you're prob you probably wouldn't necessarily bring this up, but I'll bring it up. I mean, you were at a point in your career too where, you know, you had re done a very good job of establishing yourself you yeah. know, within the worlds you were working in to a point yeah. where, you know, the next 10 years were going to be sweet, sweet and full mm. of great career opportunities. I mm. imagine mm. that I can only imagine if you're spending so much time, mm. you know, like you said, you know, the majority of your time now is carer that mm. those opportunities mm. move on and go yeah, away. They do. In fact, they do. And look, I will, it is very, um, I was listening to you talking with Corey White and a lot of that resonated with me. It is very un-Australian, you know, to kind of go, yes, I was doing very well. Um, I will say as, a, as an older feminist, I'm trying to own that and say I fucking was doing well, you know, and I'd worked nearly two decades toward doing well. And I was earning, you know, more money than I thought I'd ever earn. 
I was having more opportunities. So at the point that Rose um, got sick, for example, I had just started um, a regular TV spot on ABC. I was working on ABC radio regularly, um, including, you know, month fill-in hosting roles. Um, I was doing a lot of corporate gigs. And when I say corporate, I mean sort of healthy, you know, health-related things um, for good money. I had a certain amount of, I guess you'd say, um, economic, but also cultural capital. Yes. Which is something that we don't talk about enough, I think, cultural capital. I was going to say, of the two, which of them is the hardest to lose, the economic or the cultural? Do you know, I'm not sure yet because I've just made a decision. So going back to chronic pain, I heard a story where, they're, you know, in Australia, we're going to package Panadol smaller. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, have you heard this? Mm-hmm. So we have to, because people are at age, yep. having too much pain at all. And it stopped me in my tracks because I thought we can't be all in this much pain. Like, it, we just can't be. Like, some of us are in physical pain and, you know, I live with one of those. Um, but what is, go- we're living wrong, you know. If that's, if I've got a philosophy in life at the moment, it's we're yeah. living wrong. And that's when I said to myself, stop trying to juggle all this because I kept writing books and I'm bloody on the TV and I'm doing the radio and I'm going rushing home. I'm homeschooling Rose. I'm doing the, like I'm going insane and my relationship is suffering. My relationship of 20 years with my beautiful partner, you know, my parenting suffering, my health suffering. And so I went, right, I'm shutting it down. So from next year, I'm not working. So at the moment, I'm still in the shutting it down. So I've still got a bit of money coming in um, from work that I've done. And I've still got a little bit of cultural capital. How I'll go next year, I don't know. But I feel like I've got to roll the dice and just see what happens. I think uh, I've been thinking so much recently about, from very different perspectives, I should point out, but thinking so much about what you're saying about we're living wrong. We're living wrong. And when I say we're living wrong, I look in the mirror when I say that and yep. say I am living wrong. I'm living wrong too. Yeah. I have been doing too much. Yep. I have been prioritising. The wrong things. The wrong things. Yep. And, and, and prioritising the wrong things over, mm. you know, over the right things mm. as well. Not mm. just, you know, mm. giving my time and energy mm. to the wrong you know, people and wrong things, but mm. you know, taking away that time and energy mm. from the people and things that deserve that time mm. and energy. Mm. And I have come to the real, I, my situation being very different to yours, mm. but I've come to the realization that I haven't had that mm. life thing say, you mm. have to do this. Mm. I've come to the realization that if someone's going to change this, it's actually going to involve me saying, I want to live my life differently, differently. to how I am living my life right now. And that's mm. a, that in itself, mm. because it's just so easy to go along with mm. the way that the world wants you to mm. value things. And mm. But also with children, I mean, going back to the, you know, the political system is just us, but bigger. Mm. We know the answer. We don't like it. Yeah. Hey, Will, you have to give up some money. Yeah. Hey, Nelly, you have to give up some status. Yeah. You, you can't go overseas three times a year. You know, you can't um, buy that thing that you want. You can't have people see you on the TV and think you're important. You know, actually, you need to give that shit up and be with the people that love you, that you love, who know you, who you know. That is all we've got. You know, the rest of this stuff is just noise. That's all we've got. So I am going to try really hard to look after myself 
and my kids and my beautiful partner and just see how that goes for a year. This is complicated for a feminist will. This is complicated to be, you know, the woman going, I'll give up my career to look after my family. It's really um, like emotionally and intellectually complicated. But at the end of the day, I go, I actually know the truth. I need to change. I don't like it. You know, I want to keep doing these things. I love these things. I love writing books and I love talking on the radio and I love, you know, going to a gig and seeing Will and whoever, you know, I love this, but I can't keep doing it. I think uh, people ask me all the time, uh, you know, about my favourite podcasts and, you know, uh, it's always the ones where somebody says something that I know that I will take with me, Mm. you know, that I'll, Mm. you know, there'll be it. And, you know, it, it comes up every now and again and it's always, it's, it's always something that, you know, I personally respond to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're the idea that we know the answer, but we just don't mm. want it, that we don't want to hear it is yeah. one of the more powerful things that you could have said to me that someone said to me on this podcast for a very long time. Because oh, I think of you. so many things in life, mm. you know, as you said, from top down politics mm. to personal, mm. or maybe that should be the other way, personal yeah, yeah. to politics. All of it. Where we know the answer, mm. we just don't. We just don't want to hear really it. We really don't, don't like it. We don't like it. You know everything but the girl, yeah. Yeah, the of band. Course, yeah, of, yeah uh, they have a fantastic line in the song that says, "The heart remains a child." All right, the little child, the little child heart's going. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to stop smoking. I don't want to eat vegetables. I don't want to give up. You know, power and prestige. Unfortunately, the children are running our political system. Like all we can do, I reckon, as individuals is go, I know the answer. I actually need to live differently, face it and do it. Uh, Well, I hope that uh, next year when you're not doing anything, maybe you'll come back and we can do a part two of this because I think we have barely warmed up, to be (laughs) honest. Imagine how mental I'll be by then. It'll be great. Uh, But there's some standard questions uh, that I I need to know. What do you think happens when we die? Uh, nothing. Like I don't think there's a heaven or anything like that. But if I had to subscribe to a theory to be your sort of Joni Mitchell stardust kind of like we do go on, like we're atoms, Mm. like we exist. Um, I hate that answer because I think of, you know, the people that I've lost, like the, my nana's the love of my life. Stella Young's one of my best friends. I, I wish they were still around. I think their atoms are flying around somewhere, but is their soul? I don't think so. But yeah, and but the argument being that, of course, you, they, they are remembered by you, and they are. They are, but I want them there. Like yeah. I wish there was a ghost kind of scenario. I mean, you know? who knows? There might be. There might be, but I, I. None of us know. I reckon Stella would have like whacked me around the head by yeah. now if there was. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I don't <laughs> think there is. Um, uh, what do you reckon your greatest strength is? Um, probably I reckon I can talk to anyone about anything. Like I really don't, I actually did a brief stint in commercial radio, believe it or not, when I won Raw and, you know, the talent people um, circle, I fucking hated it, but that's a whole other thing. Um, and I remember, you know, as you're asked to do, there'll be celebrities coming into town. I think it was Will I Am or someone like that. And like, oh, Nelly's come in. You can go and do a meet or greet. And I'm like, oh, I, like I'm hanging out with my friend Tiff. Like, I, you know, we've made um, dinner plans and the look of shock on their face of like, but don't you want to meet him? I'm like, I'm not opposed to meeting him, but I, I just don't care. Yeah. If I didn't have something else on. 
Yeah, and he was totally. There. It's not totally. like I don't. It was not like I wouldn't say hello to Will. No. I am if exactly. Yeah. But I'd be just as happy to. I genuinely mean it. I'm just as happy to chat to the cleaner. I've been a cleaner, you know, as I am to Will. I am. Um, so if I if I had to say one thing I like about myself, it's that I like uh, everyone. Uh, what is the moment in your life that has made you most proud? Oh, that's a big one, isn't it? Most proud. Um, you know what? I'm going to say the decision to give up my career to look after Rose. Yeah, I think it's, I, you know, people get very, I know it's hard to talk about without being cliched, but until I had her, I think I was a bit sort of um, not emotionally shut down. Like I've always been very compassionate and sort of open person, but she like cracked my chest open. Like I am just full of love in a way that I had never been. If you could take a skill from another person. Yeah. Is there something that yes? Is there something that uh, you would love to be able to do? Yeah, to care less. Yeah, yeah, to think less. You know that I'm I'm that shark that can't stop moving. Um, that's part of the reason I have to shut the the career down. I've been trying to do less, but you will understand this. I like I'll do yeah. one gig a month. Well, then I just think about that gig for the month, and that's the only one I get paid for. So I might as well do ten. Yeah, you know. So I've got to just shut it down, and um, I'm hoping my brain will follow. We'll see. Uh, speaking of work, can we give a plug though to, you know, things that people can buy and ways that they can still support you? Oh, sure. They can um, buy my know, books if yes. they want to. Now tell people yeah. about your books. Um, so, oh, there's one I won't mention cause I don't like it, but okay. my, my three. <laughs> Nellie wrote the old Testament. <laughs> yeah. She's not, not proud of a lot of it. <laughs> he who casts the yeah. first stone. <laughs> Bit too much um... spaghetti. Not as feminist as she later became. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if you wrote the female eunuch. Yeah. Anyway, um, I've got three kids' books. One's called Some Girls. The other one's called Some Boys. And the latest one's called Some Brains. And they were pretty much all written for my youngest kid, who is a fantastic little gender bender. Um, and we uh, uh, discovered this year is autistic and is kind of like a mini Hannah Gadsby, I've got to say. Like if people want a reference, like she's got that kind of vibe fascinating. I know one of the questions you normally ask, would you go back in time? That was, this is, this is my oh, you final question. You, all right. I, I well, was going to save it for the end. Uh, sorry, sorry. No, no, it's okay. Um, she, I meant to bring it and give it to you. She wrote a cartoon. She, she does a lot of drawing and writes comics and I sell them on Facebook. When I say I sell them, if people say they'll buy them, yeah. I pay her 50 cents. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and she wrote one recently called Trust me, C-H-R-U-S-T, trust me, don't mess with time. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, this is what I'm trying, this is the, I'm so, we should talk about it another time, but I fully believe the neurodiversity movement's really important. That's what Some Brains is about, is trying to explain autism and ADHD and all of those sort of, you know, quote unquote conditions as being a natural part of biodiversity and how you talk to kids about it without going... Well, you're very different mm. and life's going to be very hard. It's a celebration. What six-year-old mm. writes a comic about, trust me, don't mess with time, who doesn't have a fucking awesome brain? Yeah. And I, I certainly don't want to oversimplify because I think there can be a romanticism around these things yes. that is also as equally as damaging. Yes. But we're at a point in our world cycle yeah. where 
the prevailing wisdom of how we've behaved and thought and these yep. sort of things has brought us to where we are right now, which Absolutely. many people would argue is a crisis point yep. in humanity and yep. that maybe some of this neurodi neurodiversity yep. is, you know, going to like, th at least through some of it, yep. we might find solutions to things that we will, you know, I have absolutely no doubt. And I agree with you. Don't romanticize it again without going into detail. Um, it is hard parenting this kid. It is really hard and she has a really hard time in the world. Um, but she's also brilliant. And, you know, it's no coincidence to me that Greta Thunberg is mm. um, autistic. No coincidence. You can't bullshit her. Mm. She doesn't care about the social conventions yeah. of, you know, well, you're meant to you know, yeah. defer to the president. Do it this way or no, no. You know, say it this way. This is the truth. No, don't you understand? Yeah. Can yeah. you imagine having a six-year-old like that, yeah. though? Oh, mum, well, you said this on Tuesday the yeah. 27th at 6.45 p.m. Oh, my God. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't quote me to me. Yeah. Final question, uh, but we've got to do this again sometime because we honestly barely got started. I had so many other things I wanted to talk to you about. But... Um, uh, so this will come as a surprise to you, this question, mm. but yet I have a time machine. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you have the opportunity. To go back. To go back in time, to a point in history and observe that or a point in your own life and mm. observe or change that mm. moment. You know, I think if I could, so as I said, my dad's one of nine brothers. And for those who listened to the Corey White episode, like his story is my dad's story. So my dad had a really rough childhood my grandma was a victim of horrific um, family violence, which is the reason I'm so passionate about it. She died in her 40s. Um, no one talks about her. I don't have a picture of her. I don't know anything about her. And yet I feel like that she, her experience and my dad's trauma has, has defined my life. So I'd like to meet her. If I could, I'd like to go back. I wouldn't probably couldn't change anything. I don't know, but I would just like to meet her and just know like these so many important women, especially, but people are just written out of our histories. And I just would love to know who she was. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming to do for it. Me too. Thank you.